0: morning again. Um, I, th- I think I said my name earlier, but if, if you're visiting or you're new, um, my name is Nathan Turquie, and I'm another one of the pastors here at South Baton Rouge. And um, on Sunday mornings, um, we're doing a um, start a very brief little miniature series last week. Um because um, I got to share a number of things with, with the search committee as, as they were interviewing us, and I wanted to be able to share with you all some things that I'm really passionate about, things that um, I consider very important in the ministry of the church. And so last week, we talked about the outward focus of the church, uh, the church facing out to those In need. William Temple, the Archbishop of Canterbury, once said, The church is the only institution that exists primarily for the benefit of those who are not its members. Um, We're here to face out to our community with the gospel in both word and deed. But this morning, I want us to think about worship um, and specifically how worship transforms us. And so we're going to look at a very classical biblical text on worship, which is Psalm 95. So if you want to follow along in your bulletin, I'm going to read this uh, for us, and then we'll pray and we'll talk about worship. So let's give our attention to God's holy and inerrant word, the Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are His also. The sea is His, for He made it. And His hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For He is our God and we are the people of His pasture. And the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go before him and ask for his help as we look at this passage. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, um, we come before you now asking for your grace, uh, for your mercy, for your kindness. Would you please open your word to us? Reveal to us the condition of our hearts. Reveal to us the person and work of your son, Jesus. Um, we pray that you would remind us this morning that no matter how we, we've come this morning and gathered together, that um, we are all far more broken than we could have ever imagined about ourselves. Um, and so we need the hope of the good news. We need the hope of Jesus, um, because it's only in Him that we can be both far more broken than we ever imagined, but also far more loved and far more secure and approved and accepted than we could have ever dared to dream was possible. So, Father, take us to Jesus, we pray. It's in His name we ask these things. Amen. Uh, I'm really sorry about this, but um, we started having kids about... 13 years ago, um, and so all of my movie illustrations are from about 13 years ago, um, so um, just hadn't had a whole lot of time, but anyway, about that long ago, um, there was a great movie about the famous racehorse uh, in the Depression era that came out, Sea Seabiscuit, um, appropriately named for that racehorse, and there's a great line In that movie that that I want you to think about, let me just set it up for you. Near the beginning of that movie, if you can remember having seen it, uh, Mr. Howard is this wealthy investor and he went to get his first look at this horse named Seabiscuit and he took his wife and his trainer with him. And so the idea was that they would get this jockey, Red Pollard, and he would get on this horse and he would ride it around the track and they'd see what they were getting. And so that was the plan, but as soon as he gets on the horse, the horse is just all over the track. It's not running in a circle. It's zigzagging and all this kind of stuff. It just looks terrible. It looks like the furthest thing from a racehorse ever. And uh, so um, Mr. Mr. Howard's wife said, you know, jokingly, he seems pretty fast, right? And the trainer said, yeah, but in every direction because he was all over the place. Um, But the joke kind of between them being over, um, the trainer, you see him looking deeper, and he's reflecting um, out loud, and he said this, and this is the line. He's so beat up, it's hard to tell what he's like. I just can't help feeling they've got him so screwed up, running in a circle, he's forgotten what he was born to do. He just needs to learn How to be a horse again. And and it's a great line. And if you saw the movie, you know that they they bought the horse. And the first thing they did was not put the horse on the track and make him run around the circle. They took him out to the wide open country and just let him run and be reminded of what he was born to do and born to be. And if you haven't seen the movie, you're way behind. The horse was fast. Um, But... um, Here's what all this has to do with us. Um, I think there's a lot of us in this room that can relate to that. Um, That feeling like we're screwed up and we feel like we've just been running in circles and we're exhausted and we feel beaten up and we feel beaten down and we want to change. We want to be able to run in freedom. But we just feel stuck, right? And I need you to give me some time to flesh this out as we go this morning. But I think the Bible says to us that the key for you and me to find the freedom to change and the key to getting unstuck and the key to facing life's brokenness With joy and confidence and hope, it is in remembering what you were born to do and be, And what you were born to do, what you were made to do, is worship the one who made you and loves you. I'll put it like this. In your life and mine, it's worshiping things other than the one who made us and loves us that has led to all the distortion and breakdown in our lives and it's only worship that will get us out of that. It's only by coming to worship the one who is truly worthy of worship that we'll find freedom, that we'll find healing and true transformation in our lives, um, and really the restoration of our humanity, uh, what we were born to be and do. So I've got four simple points that I'm going to run through pretty briefly, um, and I'll just give them to you a- as I go. but. Here's the question I want us to answer today from, from this text. Um, what kind of worship will transform us? What kind of worship will transform us? And the first thing I want you to see is worship that transforms, it engages your whole being. right? The kind of worship that will lead to transformation in your life and set you free to change, it has to engage your whole being. Verse 1 calls us to sing, to make a joyful noise. Verse 2, we're to come with songs of praise and with thanksgiving. Worship, the psalmist is saying, is to engage us emotionally, um, which I know is scary territory for a bunch of Presbyterians. But, but this is emotional language in this psalm. You know, ever since Adam... Burst into song at the sight of Eve in Genesis chapter 2 and he said, at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Ever since then, singing has been one of the chief means available to us for expressing our emotions. And expressing emotion has never been a sign of weakness. It's always been a sign of being deeply human and made in God's image. But the psalmist also says that transforming worship engages us volitionally. Because in verse 6, we're told to worship and bow down. We're to kneel before the Lord, our maker. Volition, an act of the will, right? Bowing down and kneeling. What is that? That is language of submission. Um, Real transforming worship, it, it isn't less than the expression of our feelings and our emotions, but it is so, so much more. I mean, transforming worship happens when we are taking our hands off of our lives and we are falling before God on our knees, ready and willing to obey, it's saying, not my will be done, but yours be done. But finally and briefly, and I'm going to expand on this just a bit in the next point, but transforming worship also engages us intellectually. See, verses 1 and 6, if you look, to look at those, those are calls to worship. They begin, oh come. Um, But what fills the space in between those verses is deep thought and deep reflection on who God is and what God has done. It's using our intellect, our minds to think and process through and apply the revealed truths of Scripture to our lives. True worship that transforms has to engage your whole being. Um, I'm going to try to illustrate this and just say one more thing in application. Um, In the mid-1800s, there was a famous French tightrope walker named Charles Blondin. Um, And he was a kind of daredevil of his time. And in 1860, he came to the uh, US-Canadian border to attempt to be the first person to walk a tightrope across the Niagara Falls. Niagara Falls, Keith. Niagara. Um, anyway. You, you had to be here last night for Josh's going away party. I try not to do a lot of inside jokes, but he's pretty funny. Um, so the crowds came out to see, um, And he, to the delight of the crowd, he walked across this tightrope across Niagara Falls. And then he started upping the ante, and he went across blindfolded. Um, And then he rode a bicycle across. And then he even once carried a little miniature stove out with him in the middle of the tightrope. And he cooked an omelet and ate it in the middle of the road. And the crowd was going crazy. And so the next thing he did was he got a wheelbarrow and he filled it with a sack of these heavy potatoes and he pushed it all the way across. And they're cheering him on and all that kind of stuff. And so he turned to the crowd and he says, Do you believe I can carry a person across in this wheelbarrow if I wanted? And the crowd, yes, we believe. They're going crazy, right? And as the story goes, Blondin then said, so who wants to get in the wheelbarrow? And everybody got quiet and nobody moved, right? What is the difference between a life that's just limping along and one of real transformation? I mean, you think about that story. There was emotional excitement there, right? There was intellectual belief. They saw him go across that tightrope. But what was missing was real personal submission. And my simple point is this. Worship that changes and moves you and transforms you, it has to engage your whole being. Were we just to get together and sing, and express our emotion, that wouldn't be worship. Were we just to get together and affirm what we believe, that wouldn't be worship by itself. Were we to get together and just make vows and commitments before the Lord, as good as those things are, that wouldn't be worship. So I hope when you're here at South Baton Rouge Brez, you realize everything that goes in to our Sunday morning worship um, is meant to engage Your whole being. I mean, we want to reflect and think deeply together. And we also want to delight and tremble before the God who made us and loves us. And we also want to bow down and kneel in submission to the King of Kings. Why is that? Why do we want all the? Because God wants all of you. Not just a part of you. We only come what we were born to be and do when our whole lives are centered upon Him. Okay, second, worship that transforms is fueled by truth. I mentioned a moment ago these calls to worship that show up in verse 1 and verse 6 um, with the words, O come. But if you notice and you look at the passage, you'll realize that each call to worship is followed by a three-letter word in English, the word for. And it shows up in verse 3 and in verse 7. W- what's the psalmist doing? He's telling us why. Why? We're to worship. And he's telling us why we're to worship by, by reflecting on the revealed truth of Scripture and telling us who God is and what He's done that makes Him worthy of our worship. See, what he's doing is he's fanning to flame worship. It, it's like throwing gasoline on a fire and he's fanning it to flame with the truth of Scripture. Years ago, when I first started doing uh, college ministry, campus ministry, Jennifer and I, that's my wife, we were living in Martin, Tennessee. And we had this little house that was way out in the country. Um, We both grew up city kids, but I think we just loved the idea of being out in the country. And so we lived in this little house that was on an acre of land, but it was surrounded by thousands and thousands of acres of farmland. And so one night we decided we are going to have all the kids over from our, our, um, our, our campus group and we were going to have a big bonfire in our backyard. So I spent all day building up this teepee kind of style deal for the, the fire. And, um, and when everybody got there, I decided I was going to use uh, gasoline as lighter fluid, um, which I, I know that's not right now, um, but I didn't know it then. Um, and so I doused this wood with gasoline and then I, I poured a little trail away from it in my grass and uh, that was going to be my fuse and I lit that trail and it snaked its way up to the, the, uh, the pile of wood and when it hit, you can ask anybody that was there that evening, there was a small mushroom cloud in our backyard. I thought it was like a nuclear explosion. It just went up and out and went everywhere. And Jennifer um, was in the kitchen, and in her version of the story, she, she says, she did not realize how fast I could move when I was motivated. Um, I, I ran to get that hose. I mean, I was within 10 seconds of being on CNN. Um, because I was about to burn down Weakley County, um, but we caught it. And it hit, here's why I bring that up: worship that transforms it explodes upward and outward in our lives when it's fueled by truth. It's going over and over the excellencies of who God is by thinking over and over the things He has done. It's pouring over the Bible's claims of how God Himself is the ultimate beauty that we seek and need. It's housing ourselves in the good news of how God Himself is the one Lord and Savior we can trust to set us free. It's doing all of that until it dawns on our hearts and explodes outward and upward in our lives in worship and transformation. We don't have time to reflect on all the truths that the psalmist mentions in Psalm 95, but I'm going to pull out one as a way of application, one that particularly fits our needs here as we're talking about worship. In verse 3, The psalmist wrote, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. G.K. Chesterton um, once quipped that when man ceases to worship God, um, he doesn't worship nothing, but he worships everything instead. Um, God made you and me to be worshipers. It's in our DNA. It is at the very essence and core of our humanity. We can't help but be worshipers. And when we worship and when we center our lives on anything other than the great King above all gods, it distorts our lives and at least the breakdown of our lives and of our humanity. See, let's put it in some concrete terms. What happens when you center your life on succeeding in your career and that becomes a God to you and you worship it? We think, if I could just get there... If I could just arrive there, if I could just have that, then I would be able to rest. Then I would be happy. But instead, what happens? You know this from experience. We become enslaved to those careers. And instead of resting, we live out of fear of disappointment and failure. And we compromise all kinds of things in our lives just to get ahead and achieve. Or maybe we turn to sex or to romantic love we think, if I could just get that, then I would be fulfilled, then I would be whole, then I would be happy. And we become enslaved to the opinions of our romantic interests. Right? I'll only know that I'm lovable. I'll only know that I'm beautiful if I can get that person to approve of me. Or we become enslaved to images on our laptop screens. Or, or, or maybe we center our lives on money, or maybe it's security, or comfort, uh, or the approval of others, or being moral and religious. It could be anything and everything, as Chesterton said. And listen, it's worship of these other gods that has beaten us up, and beaten us down, and enslaved us, and sent us running in circles and all screwed up. We've forgotten what we were born to be. But there's one great king, the psalmist is saying, above all gods, that when you center your life upon him, you will find freedom and healing and the restoration of your humanity. So you have the soak in the truth of who God is and what he's done, that he's the great king. Verse 1, he is the rock of our salvation. And we've got to fan that into flame. Alright, third and I'll be brief here because I'm going to expand on this next Sunday and talk a little bit about community, but worship that transforms us is corporate. It's so obvious in this psalm that most of us probably didn't even pay attention to it the first time we read it, but everything in this psalm is in the plural. Let us sing. Let us make a joyful noise. Let us come. Let us kneel. Our Maker. We are the people of His pasture. The thrust of the Bible is that the only worship that will really transform you is corporate. worship in community. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me here. Um, It's important, and it's good for us to worship individually. It's good for us individually to practice engaging our whole being in worship. It's good for us individually to spend regular time in God's Word fanning the flame and using the truths of God to do that, uh, that are found in Scripture. But here's, here's the thrust of the Bible, I think. Your individual worship is vitally important, mainly because it prepares you and readies you for corporate worship, where the real work of transformation takes place. Now, why is that? We live in a world, and you and I, we all have friends that say, I can worship God just as well on my own in the privacy of my own home or out in nature or whatever, or I know I'm not a member of any one church. I just kind of like to hop around uh, to different churches, or I I can worship fine as a spectator without really knowing and being known by anybody in the community. And the Bible says, no, you can't. You can't. That won't transform you. Why is that? This is, has to be one of the most well-worn and often used C.S. Lewis quotes by preachers, but it does help us imagine why we need others who know us and are known by us. Lewis, some of you may know, he had this really close group of friends that would get together, and they called themselves the Inklings, and they would regularly meet together. And in this little group of friends, their friend Charles passed away. And initially, Lewis thought... Well, now he's going to have so much more of his friend Ronald because he's going to have them all to himself now that his friend, now that his friend Charles had gone. Um, but what he realized was when Charles was gone, he didn't give more of Ronald. He got less of Ronald. And this is how he put it. He wrote, In each of my friends there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Caroline joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. He's saying to really know Ronald, he needed Charles. Right? There were aspects of Ronald's character that only Charles could bring out and reveal. And and the question for us is, I think, pretty simple. If that's true of finite beings, how much more true must that be of an infinite and eternal God? We desperately need each other. Right? Our relations with one another are not a nice little bonus in addition to our lives, but absolutely essential. We need the diversity of classes and personality types and gifts that different people bring. We need a diversity of ages and races and genders and on and on. Look, let me ask you why when God made man did he make him male and female in his own image? Right, why did he want from the beginning linguistic and cultural and racial and ethnic diversity in his creation? Because there is no one group, there is no one culture type, there is no one personality type, there is no one gender that could ever bring out all of this beauty. We desperately need one another if we're going to worship in a way that brings transformation into our lives. And so my encouragement to you this morning is to invest in relationships here. Whether that's going to a Bible study or getting plugged into a community group or finding some way that you can serve here, but you need to be known. And you need to know. To know and be known. Uh, worship that's corporate will transform you. So finally, we're at the last point. Um, wor- and here it is. Worship that transforms also rests in the gospel. Verses 8 through 11. They sound a little strange with this psalm when you read them, right? It starts from making a joyful noise to the Lord and shouting to the rock of our salvation to this very serious warning at the end about not listening to God and not entering His rest. Let me explain, I'm going to try to explain briefly how how this all fits together. What the psalmist is doing is he's talking about a very specific story in the life of Israel, when they were wandering in the wilderness, which you can read later on your own, it's in Exodus chapter 17. Um, But God's people, they were grumbling and they were quarreling in the wilderness and they were demanding that God give them water to drink. Now, basically, what they were doing in Exodus chapter 17, which you can read, is they were bringing a formal charge against God. They were using judicial and courtroom language. They were indicting God because He had not provided for them on their timetable. So what did God do? How did God respond to that kind of grumbling and, and quarreling? He basically let it happen. Right? He told Moses, go get your staff and meet me at this rock. And then God said, I'll come down and I'll meet with you on that rock. And here's what God was saying when he was doing all this. He was saying, I'll put myself on trial by appearing on that rock. And he was identifying with that rock. And some of you might remember this story. God told Moses then to strike the rock and water would come out. And here's what God was saying. He was saying, I'll put myself. In the place of guilty Israel. And I will be struck for them in their place. You know, the apostle of Paul also wrote about this specific story in Israel's history. In 1 Corinthians 10. And this is what he wrote. They drank, speaking of the Israelites. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ." In other words, he's saying it was a picture. One day, God would send his own son, and he would allow himself to be put on trial in the place of his people, and he would be struck down for them. Now, with all that background information, you come back to verse 1 of Psalm 94, and you read this Let us make a joyful noise to who? To the rock of our salvation. And the rock, Paul says, was Jesus. How do you and I, how do we heed the warning of verses 8 through 11 here and not harden our hearts? I'll tell you, we come to the rock of our salvation, Jesus, and we rest in Him. We come to Him and we rest in what He has done in our place. A friend of mine once told me, um, About this time, he was in Walmart uh, on a Saturday morning. And uh, this friend of mine told me he was minding his own business when he heard a child one aisle over just screaming and crying. Um, Which is not that unusual if you've ever been in a Walmart on a Saturday morning. Um, But anyway, um, I think field trips to Walmart on Saturdays would be good abstinence training. But anyway, he made this... Assumption that you and I would have made too, right? Um, he made the assumption that this child was being denied something he wanted and therefore was just throwing a fit in Walmart. Um, and so, but he peeked around the corner of the aisle and what he saw was a little boy who was all alone. And he, he somehow got separated from his mother and he was terrified. And he was screaming. And so my friend said he was sitting there wondering what he was supposed to do in this situation. When the boy's mother came running around the, the other end of the aisle, right? And he said she ran down to him. She scooped him up in his arms. Um, and he said, he said the amazing thing was how he watched that child go from just utter panic and screaming and crying. And he said... I stood there, and within 30 seconds, that child was fast and sound asleep in his mother's arms at perfect rest. That's what you and I were made for. We were made to come into our father's arms and rest. You were made to bring your whole being to him and rest in his love for you. You were made to come into His arms. You were made to soak in the truth of His holy love for you. you were, and we we're made to do this together. Not in isolation from one another. But the church. The bride of Jesus, we were made to come and rest in His love. And we can because God's own Son came. The rock of our salvation, Jesus. And He was struck down for us in our place. You know, I was thinking about this this morning. What we do on Sunday mornings um, in worship, I know, I hope you know, it looks like utter foolishness to the world. But really, what we're doing on Sunday mornings is we're coming to have our sanity restored. Right? We're coming to worship. We're coming to do what we were made to do. We're coming to be the people God made us to be. And it's only as we come into the outstretched arms of Jesus, whose arms were nailed open for you and me, that we will ever find Him to be the only ultimate beauty in life that will never distort us or break us down, but will only satisfy us and fulfill us. It's as we pull ourselves off of the other gods and we latch ourselves onto Him in worship that we are, in fact, transformed. Let's pray together.